crimes are dangerous and insidious, but you have the power to help stop them. If you witness or experience a hate crime, a criminal offense motivated by race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, or other characteristics, you can report it to the FBI, who is committed to protecting communities and supporting victims. Submit a tip at 800-CALL-FBI or tips.fbi.gov. The FBI is here to help. Protecting our communities together. Report hate crimes. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Flying into Montreal. Uh, I don't know if it's always like this. The, the flight path from the southeastern United States goes like this. Um, you fly... You can in in from the south shore, so you can see Shadagay, Kanawake, Saint Catherine, uh, and then you you cross the Saint Lawrence, and you sort of follow the Saint Lawrence up the island, over the Mercier Bridge, Champlain Bridge, the Jacques Cartier Bridge. Along the way, you can. Uh, see um, the remnants of uh, the World's Fair, Man and His World, the island. I think it's called Jean Drapeau Island now, and most significantly the um, the globe the, the, of the USA pavilion, what's left of it. These, these landmarks um, that I've always said are sort of like um, almost characters in the story of Montreal. Uh, at the Jacques Cartier Bridge um, inland, you probably probably wouldn't know what it is, but you can certainly most distinctively see the headquarters of the Certe de Quebec, this uh, black monolith sticking up, um, looking like something from Kubrick's 2001. Uh, um, and then you continue to go down, and right around the Olympic Stadium, uh, which is very distinctive. You, you, you make the turn. You do a 180, and then you start coming up the other side of the island of Montreal, the north side. Um, again, following uh, the Saint Lawrence. It's not called the Saint Lawrence. Um, um, once known as the Back River, but it's the St. Lawrence in all effects. Um, and uh, so the, at that point, you can, in the in the distance, you can most certainly see St. Joseph's Oratory, the basilica, basilica-like church, Catholic church, um, at the top of the mount, the mount. Um, and then you, and you're coming in very low because you're, you're about to head into Dorval Airport, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Airport and you're low and you can see the star-shaped um, uh, landscape of the Bordeaux prison Bordeaux is a provincial prison, a jail in the Montreal borough of Ahuntsic uh, Cartierville. It started construction in 1908 and was completed in 1912 by architect uh, Jean Omer Marchand to replace the uh, aged, um, aged uh, P.A.O. du Carin prison, which um, uh, that facility uh, still exists. It's not a prison anymore, but it is also in the shadow of um, uh, the Sarté du Québec HQ down by the waterfront near the Jacques Cartier Bridge, um, one of the oldest 
prison facilities, um, which saw the incarceration and execution by hanging of several of the patriots who fought in the Lower Canada Rebellion. Uh, Bordeaux currently houses male inmates sentenced to less than two years imprisonment. Um, it also houses prisoners awaiting trial. It's the largest uh, provincial prison in Quebec, housing about 1,400 inmates. Uh, but even before it opened, the jail made headlines um, with a staggering, at that time, 2.5 million price tag, which seem astronomical. Um, the tiny cells caused a public outcry at the time because they each contained what seemed like a luxury of flushing toilets and electricity. Inmates would disagree. In all, 90 inmates have escaped Bordeaux, including uh, Lucien Rivard, who linked uh, garden hoses used to freeze the outdoor skating rink and then climb the walls of Bordeaux. Uh, not everyone who uh, entered the jail made it out. 82 people, including three women, were hanged from a balcony. The last hanging took place in 1960. Now uh, officially called the Montreal Detention Center, this star-shaped building uh, was meant to be state-of-the-art. And um, even today, two of its wings uh, remain uh, unchanged. Uh, Bordeaux, to look at it, reminds me of the facility where Alec was interned in Clockwork Orange. Um, Chantal Bouchard of... Uh, the Bordeaux Jail Centennial Committee, the prison celebrated its 100th anniversary in 2012, explained at the time, uh, it has been witness of the evolution of criminology in Quebec. It has been the witness of the change of mind, the change of belief, with the evolution of thinking of criminology. Now social insertion is at the heart of of the Correctional Services Mission. Bordeaux has been the privileged witness of all this evolution. On February 22nd, 1965, the first sod was turned on a new facility to replace the psychiatric wing of the Bordeaux prison. The Institute Philippe Penel for the criminally insane. This is who killed Teresa. It's awfully considerate of you to think of me here, and I'm most obliged to you for making it clear that I'm not here. And I never knew the moon could be so big, and I never knew the moon. Our focus today is going to be um, some history, um, some tales um, from the Pinel Institute for the Criminally Insane in Montreal. Uh, you, you know of this place because we've referred to it um, on several occasions. Um, certainly Claude LaRouche spent time here, for, I think, 60 days under observation uh, to be evaluated in the murder of um, Natasha Cornoyer. Carla Hamoka spent time here. Uh, Michel Deary, who in 1983 murdered Melanie Decan, um, is interned here uh, for life. He's never been uh, let go. And I think um, before we get started, that's as good as a segue as I'm ever going to get into give you a case update, something I've been meaning to do um, for some time. So we're going to uh, we're going to shift gears momentarily and then get back to Pinnell. And, um, but um, a couple of years ago, um, I did a profile on the murders of two teenagers, 13-year-old uh, Deanne Deary 
and 15-year-old uh, Mario Corbet. These were the Longay murders uh, in 1975, where the young boy um, has a like a motor scooter. He's giving rides in his neighborhood. The last ride's given to Diane. They go down the road in Longay. They they disappear. Next morning, their bodies are found in a field, um, and um, they they've been shot. They've been murdered. Um, <clears throat> And uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but um, just to say last winter, I was contacted uh, by Radio Canada. Um, This in itself is inherently confusing. Radio Canada is a radio station, and yet it's also a television station, which is confusing. (laughs) But uh, I was contacted by Radio Canada TV to participate in... um, a uh, true crime crime series called uh, La Dernière Soir, The Last Night, uh, sort of a five or six episodic thing, kind of along the lines of the, um, you know, the staircase or something like this. It's sort of a Quebec version of um, well, the one from Baltimore about the, the priest. I can't remember the caretakers, something like that. Um. Anyway, this sort of thing. Um, so I agreed. Um, and uh, on um, uh, they, they, they provided me with the file. They pulled a John Allure, the producers. They, they went to uh, Bonk U, the library, and obtained the medical legal file on um, Diandiri and uh, uh, Mario Corbet. And um, it was one of those thick files where you get all kinds of goodies and surprises in it. So as long as I didn't talk about the file, I they they asked me to review it um, and give my opinion on it. Um, and on reading the file, I can say this: I quickly I quickly changed my opinion. I think in that podcast I said that uh, because where they were found was near a Canadian Air Force Base that without certainty uh, or with certainty, <laughs> with with limited uncertainty that the two children were killed by a member of the Canadian military on the basis that they were shot with a twenty two caliber pistol, which appeared to be, um, uh, you know, a military style. And I will say that I was wrong. <laughs> I they, they they most certainly were not killed in my opinion by from what I what I know now by uh, a pistolet uh, with the Canadian uh, and somebody with associated with the Canadian military. Um, the the long and the short of it is is um, so I I went to Montreal and, and participated in an interview where they asked me all kinds of questions. Um, they were particularly interested that I, at the time, was one of the only ones who was interested in the Deary Corbet case. There wasn't a lot of information on it, but I found information. They obviously, in the in the case of a five-part series, found much, much more uh, information. The series is very good. It focuses on the two families, um, and there's kind of like a Rashomon effect going on that everybody's opinion is slightly different so you have a hard time honing in on the truth I think the main thing and that uh, swayed my opinion um, had to do with the the 22 caliber pistolet so this is what the police told the public in the news at the time that the two kids had been killed with a pistol 22 caliber pistol this was not true, and this was a, a holdback device. They were shot with a twenty-two caliber long rifle, and they didn't want anyone knowing this. The particular type of long rifle that they were shot with was called a Kui, which was, um, you know, it's kind of like a starter rifle. It's the kind of rifle you give to your son daughter i guess uh you know as a present to, to, for them to learn shooting skills uh, that area longay was adjacent to forests 
would not be uncommon for young kids to go out and practice their target skills. In fact, um, that spring, um, they so they were they were they were murdered in May '75. In like as early as April '75, um, the you know like the local Canadian Tire advertising page in the newspapers was advertising a Cooey rifle as the perfect gift to give your young sportsman for Easter. Um, so all of that is to say that without going to, I, I don't want to identify the person, but this, the most likely scenario is that uh, they were shot with a long rifle by a young man who was jealous um, of uh, Mario's relationship uh, with Diane, possibly was jealous of uh, Mario having a motorcycle. Um, young man between 15 and 17 at the time, um, who later um, grew up to, uh, to be quite an influential member in uh, one of the Quebec uh, motorcycle gangs, was exiled to France and now lives there and is untouchable. So, so that's my update on on uh, Diane Diri and uh, Mario Corbet. And the segue is is this: um, during the interview on camera, they asked me um, when I did my podcast on that, did I get any interesting tips? Um, and I said, yes, I did. Uh, I, I said one of the one of the most provocative ones was because of the similar name, Diane Diri and Michel Diri, who killed the, the, the young girl uh, Melanie Camp de, de Camp in '83. Um, possibly that Diane and uh, Michel Diri were related. Um, and I, I, this is what was brought forward to me and that, that this should be pursued. And they said, well, uh, what, um, what did you do? And I said, well, I, I thought that was far-fetched. And um, so I didn't do anything about it, which <laughs> at that point they asked me on camera, would, would you be shocked to learn that they are, in fact, related, their cousins? You know, and at this point, you know, on camera, there's like this cinematic <laughs> tunneling event going on with me. And, and I, I just went for the ride because at that point, you know, you, you know, just behave. <laughs> Don't try to defend yourself. So there I am looking like, you know, Chief Brody on the beach in Jaws. Just <clears throat> um, and they 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 went on and. um said that, yeah, not only was Deary related to uh, uh, Diane, that he was living in the Brossard-Langay area at the time. And and the kicker was that his father was a well-known uh, child molester, possibly. Now, all of this is sort of a moot point. It, it ended up in, in the show to be another sort of dead end, uh, it's not the most plausible possible scenario. It, it's a coincidence. Uh, they did not think Michelle murdered Dion. They thought the one responsible, of course, was this other young man. So back to Michelle Deary and why I bring him up. I bring him up because, as I said, he's a, a, he's a lifetime resident of um, the Pinnell Institute Um uh, which at the time it was built was it was considered you know inescapable right it was like the island in Papillon or something no one's ever going to get out of here and of course in 2001 you know on a day pass uh, what the hell was he doing on a day pass and Deary, Deary escaped and took them I don't know something like 48 hours to recapture Deary and incarcerate him and um, that's that's kind of the point of why I uh bring him up. We're going to talk about the the history of uh, uh, Pinnell um, and it, it's it's many troubles over the decades with um, 
properly treating and, and, and turning and caring for its, uh, its, its clientele inmates. The location of a mental hospital within a prison, uh, as in the case of Bordeaux, had long been criticized, um, and the new facility couldn't come soon enough. Uh, a brief submitted to the Provo Commission in 1967 said that sanitary conditions in the psychiatric wing were worse than that of the Quebec Zoo with 150 men and boys living among rats, cockroaches, and bedbugs in the D-wing. Um, I think that the five spans of, um, of Bordeaux are A, B, C, D, E. Uh, the report went on to say that the D-wing reeked of food and garbage during periods of extreme heat, that cement walls were crumbling and furniture and floors were destroyed, Often unruly inmates with no history of psychological troubles at all were housed in the wing because prison staff didn't know how to cope with them. Inmates with no criminal records were often in cells with murderers. 20% of the wing's population had committed multiple murders. Uh, the Bordeaux psych wing had 10 dungeon cells reserved for troublemakers. Though uh, it was a corrections facility, Bordeaux was actually under the control at that time of the city of Montreal's Department of Public Works. The Institute uh, Philippe Penel was named after the famous French physician who pioneered the humane treatment of the mentally ill. Uh, it was supposed to solve all the Bordeaux problems. It was decided uh, Pennell would be uh, located at the northeast end of the city, uh, almost at the end of Henri Barassa, in what, what then was quite, um, uh, I, I'd say, industrial, uh, possibly even um, uh, rural. Uh, and even before it was uh, finished, experts were calling for a second uh, facility um, to be constructed to house the remainder of the Quebec inmates outside of Montreal who also needed uh, psychiatric care. At that time, it was reported that 23,000 people in Quebec were suffering from schizophrenia and 29,000 were victims of depressive illnesses. Of the 33,000 provincial hospital beds, almost 23,000 were occupied by patients who were mentally ill. Before its completion, officials boasted that the new Pinal Institute would have no bars on its windows, yet be escape-proof. It would take a prisoner equipped with a hammer three to four hours to shatter one of the windows. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, it didn't take inmates long to figure out that you didn't need to physically break through the structure in order to escape from Pinnell. Less than a year after opening in 1970, the Institute Philippe Pinnell had its first prison escapee. Following is from Jim Duff in the Montreal Gazette, who admittedly didn't have his facts altogether initially, um, but nevertheless, it, um, it's a component of the tale that's worth telling. 32-year-old Garrett Trapnell 
a.k.a. Robert Anson Brock, considered himself a ladies' man. The guards used to joke about all his girlfriends who would come and visit him at Pinnell. On Sunday, January 24, 1971, just as visiting hours were ending, Trapnell, who supposedly didn't have his wits about him, faked a hostage situation. One of Trapnell's regular lady visitors, an attractive brunette, slipped him a revolver and he walked out the front door of Pinnell with the brunette in tow, then into a black Mustang getaway car parked at the front of the Institute with four guards in pursuit. Police bulletins describe Trapnell as armed and extremely dangerous. However, a guard at the Institute described him as anything but violent. He was depressed at having to celebrate his 33rd birthday in prison. That was the story on Monday. By Tuesday, after Trapnell was apprehended in Syracuse, New York, things shifted. It turns out that the brunette was actually a blonde <laughs> named Nicole Forget, and she did not know Trapnell. Forget was working late at the Institute as a stenographer. No one knows how uh, Garrett Trapnell got the revolver, but it was not loaded when the police made his arrest. Trapnell was from Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, my, uh, my hometown boy. And declared unfit to stand trial after a series of holdups in the Montreal area. Um, when they walked out at the Montreal facility that day, Trapnell appeared to be looking for an accomplice to make his getaway. Um, and remember, at this time, he's he's got the uh, Forger as a hostage. And when no one arrived, Forger offered him her black Mustang. Now, Trapnell first headed uh, uh, east for the Champlain Bridge, but then realized that police uh, might might be waiting uh, for him there. Uh, it's a, it's the logical route, um, so they might have um, roadblocks. And it was Forget who suggested he drive toward Ontario and make the crossing into the States at the Thousand Islands Bridge across the St. Lawrence River into New York. Now, Trapnell insisted he be let off at a gas station in Syracuse around three in the morning, and he was apprehended uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, we we could we we could easily do a whole hour on just uh, Garrett Trapnell alone, but that that's for another day. You should you should look him up. Um, he eventually made the FBI's ten most wanted list. Um, uh, involved in a very famous hijacking. <laughs> this guy is a character. Uh, but the point is, is that Quebec officials may have thought that Pinel was going to be some impenetrable fortress. Uh, and and from, from its opening, you know, less than a year later or a little over a year later, people people were escaping uh, from the place all the, all the time. In July 1972, three men escaped, Paul Martin, uh, Jacques Lavasseur, and André Graton. Um, they were eventually captured, but, but then in the following summer came this big hostage situation at um, 4.30 uh, on Tuesday, June 12, 1973, two murderers, Normand Champagne and André Graton, yes, him again, the same guy who escaped the previous summer, armed with knives uh, uh, stolen from the Pinnell Institute's kitchen, herded three employees, including a nurse, into a control room, like a control tower, overlooking the entrance to the complex. Graton ordered uh, authorities to supply him with $850 in cash and two walkie-talkie sets. He then... <laughs> modest demands. 
uh, he then led the director of, uh, believe me, as uh, as hostage things went on in, in Quebec, they uh, they learned to ask for more. Uh, but I digress. Um, so so uh, um, Graton leads the director of the institute, Doctor Lionel uh, Bellivaux, out the front door as his hostage, right? Um, while his accomplice. Uh, Normand Champagne remained behind in this uh, control tower. With uh, Belleville driving, Graton jumps out of the vehicle around um, the neighborhood of uh, Outremont, which is in the shadow of uh, of the uh, the church there we um, we talked about um, Saint Joseph's Oratory, that neighborhood. If if Champagne did not hear from Graton by 11 p.m., the plan was that Champagne was to immediately shoot all three hostages. Um, with no word, <laughs> I, I don't even understand the logic. Uh, with no word from Graton, shortly before 10 p.m., Champagne demanded that CJMS radio reporter and sometime negotiator Claude Poirier be brought to the Institute to negotiate his release. Just before 11 p.m., a local ham radio operator began to pick up snatches of the conversations between Champagne and Claude Poirier. The the operator then called the Montreal police and asked them, were they aware that this situation was taking place at the Pinel Institute? Police in Montreal were totally left uh, blindsided. Uh, It took Pennell officials over six hours to inform them of the situation. And and this becomes a a theme, by the way. Uh, A Pennell security chief later explained, "Uh, we just couldn't take the chance of telling police and have Gretan caught before he made the call to Champagne. And this is a continual push-pull uh, um, that goes on. Also, the idea that um, when when it does get uh, uh, you know be, be made public, the institute insistence uh, that the the inmate is not a danger and and and, uh, and a threat, um, totally contradicting law enforcement's uh, opinion that you know in many of these cases the, the guy you know. Uh, is is a repeat murderer and is very much a threat. Um, so at at midnight, Champagne frees the hostages, and um, he leaves the Pinel Institute with with Claude Poirier. And uh, Poirier drives the inmate around Montreal, <laughs> presumably on a sightseeing tour, and then he drops him off to visit his mother. Police eventually spotted Poirier's car, and they recapture Champagne, who surrendered uh, peacefully. And we assume that uh, Graton was later apprehended, though though we don't have any um, proof of that. It appears um, that it started to become quite popular to uh, kidnap uh, the, the Institute's director, uh, Lionel Bellivaux. In 1976, he was again held hostage, this time inside his Outremont home. Two convicts, uh, 44-year-old Andre Boyer and his 26-year-old partner, failed to return to the prison on a weekend pass. But they knew immediately where to go, to the home of Dr. Lionel Bellivaux at 1295 same Viator Street. It uh, it certainly didn't help that the newspaper manages to publish the, the doctor's address. And we're thinking he's a vulnerable individual. Uh, Bellivaux, his wife, and four children were held at gunpoint while the two men discussed ransom sums with Dr. Bellivaux ranging from $10,000 to... One million dollars. Things got heated, and Boyer started shouting and waving his gun around. 
things ended abruptly when apparently Boyer's gun went off and he, he, he accidentally shot himself to death. Um, and the, the incident apparently ended there and, and everything went back to normal. summer, another hostage event at the Pinnell Institute, in a pattern that was now becoming terrifyingly familiar. Two young men, who could not at the time be named because they were both under the age of 18, broke out of the Institute on July 7, 1974, holding a pair of scissors to the neck of 27-year-old nurse Micheline Jacques on a blockaded stretch of Cavendish Boulevard near Côte de Lies, their car ran out of gas. For nearly four hours, the two men sat in the car with the scissors to Ms. Jacques' neck. At first, they demanded a revolver, a police hostage, and a police cruiser, then later added they wanted an airplane to Cuba, and uh, some cash would also be nice. Montreal police eventually persuaded the young men to give themselves up. All the while, police sharpshooters were stationed in the woods along Cavendish Boulevard. The Prison Riot In early July 1977, over 300 members of the Pinnell Employees Union walked off the job at the East End facility, leaving behind a skeleton crew of staff to watch over the 270 housed inmates. Within 24 hours, the results were not surprising. Teen inmates went on a rampage, destroying furniture, smashing windows, and stealing medical supplies. Uh, Riot squad equipped of Sûreté de Québec forces stood at the ready outside the facility, but ultimately it was a picketing band of 40 guards who marched into Pinel and quelled the riot all to the cheers of the inmates. I guess the strikers realized if the situation got out of hand, they would lose their protest, commented an observing SQ officer. They did a good job. I have to give them credit. At issue was staff capacity. The union was asking for additional positions at the institution. So we can help to rehabilitate these individuals, not simply guard them. And and that's an important point. So the facility's been open for seven years now. Um, and what's what's clearly um, really uh, not right is uh, no one's being rehabilitated. They're just being watched. Um, and, and that was the state of Pinnell at that time. Um, as the strike dragged on, things became desperate. Uh, union leaders charged that Pinnell administrators were giving patients unusually heavy doses of tranquilizers to keep them quiet and maintain order. So they're just medicating these people, right? And one uh, inmate who was transferred to a neighboring facility because Pinnell could no longer perform electroshock therapy with the limited staffing, this, this inmate committed suicide uh, by jumping out a fifth floor window. By the end of July, union representatives and administration came to an agreement. 29 new workers uh, would be provided to the institution. And uh, on uh, July 25th, the Montreal Gazette publishes this uh, 
feel-good piece titled uh, Inside Pinnell, A Smile Can Make It All Worthwhile. And uh, for a time, things go back to a state of relative normalcy. This last story, I think, is instructive because it gives good insight on to how the place operated for the, the most severe inmates in, in the treatment of the mentally ill. This is from the Montreal Gazette um, from September 7th, 1983. Suspect in slaying is a mental patient. A 34-year-old man held on a coroner's warrant in Sunday's stabbing death of a young prostitute was found mentally unfit to stand trial for a similar crime 12 years ago. Joseph Lavoie, who was released from the Philippe Penel Institute for the Criminally Insane last February, is being held for an inquest in the death of Gwendolyn Jones, 21, of Norwalk. Connecticut. Lavoie surrendered to police shortly after Jones was found stabbed to death in an apartment at 6920 31st Avenue in Montreal's Rosemount District. Lavoie was found mentally unfit to stand trial in the June 1971 strangulation death of Lise Provincial, 17 of the Saint-Henri District and was ordered detained indefinitely. Dr. Lionel Belliveau, director of the Pinel Institute, said yesterday that Lavoie is still under the order. Belliveau explained that Lavoie, a resident of the Institute for 10 years, had been on supervised release for seven months since February and, quote, appeared to be doing well. Belliveau confirmed that Lavoie telephoned the Riviere des Prairies Institute Saturday morning, saying he wasn't feeling well. A nurse supervisor talked to Lavoie and instructed him to stay at home until a psychiatrist from the Institute contacted him. Several attempts were made to contact Lavoie by telephone from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, said Belliveau. At first, Lavoie telephoned it was busy, but then there was no answer. We're dealing with people who want, then don't want, help. If he really wanted help, he could have taken a taxi to the Institute. We would have paid for the fare, and he knew this. Belliveau said Lavoie's progress had been closely followed since his release. He met weekly with a psychiatrist, and he could have been ordered back to the Institute if the examination committee deemed it necessary. Belliveau said that at any given time, 25 to 30 of the Institute's patients are being reintegrated into society. And I think that's what is at issue in in many of these cases, and at issue over the years with the, the you know the history of um, people either escaping um, from the facility or escaping went out on on day pass or or just not coming back. Um, I think that is an an accurate figure even to today that you know at any time, what is that like ten percent of the population is is out on day pass and trying to be reintegrated. But uh, you would say at what price? Um, is it is it worth even... Yes, and I'm not, I'm not going to take a side with this, but uh, hardliners would say, is it worth even one life, right? Is it, is it worth um, the life... Is it worth the life of uh, Gwendolyn Jones, um, a prostitute from Connecticut, um, when when someone like uh, Lavoie, you know, slips through the slips through the cracks or becomes unresponsive, and uh, you, you know, he could take a taxi, and is a pretty poor argument, and and often 
in often in these situations, law enforcement is not even aware. I don't think they can be made aware of, in some instances, who's out or you know what the processes are of the institute. There's there's a long, long um, you know static and 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 misunderstanding between the people who put. Uh, you know, take people off the streets and incarcerate them, and then the the actual um, guardians, uh, corrections facility, um, and uh, and and often in these cases over the year, we don't have, we don't have time to to cover everything here. It's just a sampling. Certainly, there are, there are many more. You know, there's um, trying to trying to think of his name. There's a guy like in two thousand. Uh, Eight. He was an axe murderer, right? Um, uh, Christoph Masiak. Yeah, my God, the guy looked like Travis Bickle. And he slips through the cracks, and he's picked up later, you know, at a Canadian tire buying a pup tent. A friggin' axe murderer, right? Who, 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 who fatally, you know, chomped to death, smashed the skull of his nine-year-old daughter. Um, I don't understand, you know, how a guy like that can escape. Um, although, although Wayne Bowden uh, wasn't an, an inmate at Pinnell, he's a, he's an inmate in Laval. Um, I've never done a program on uh, the serial killer Wayne Bowden. I probably never will because I find if I, I find him done to death in podcasts and uh, really not that interesting. Except for the you know the the moniker the vampire rapist is titillating, but uh, what I do find interesting about Wayne Bowden was he, he too was out on a, a day pass, right in uh, in Montreal. Although he was in uh, although he was in uh, Laval, nineteen seventy seven. He's I, he's you know they say he's with his caseworker. I think he was with his art teacher on a day pass at the Contiki Polynesian restaurant in downtown Montreal, uh, in the Mount Royal Hotel, and, you know, slipped out the bathroom. Uh, you just scratch your head. Um, anyway, I'm not, as I say, I'm not going to take sides. Um, I do believe in rehabilitation, um, but at what price? Um, wh- wh- what's the limit? And clearly there are many, many other stories we could talk about with Pinnell. We, we, we didn't even touch on Guy Turcotte, um, who was sentenced to Pinnell, I think, in 2009. Uh, stabbed his five-year-old uh, son 27 times, I think his three-year-old daughter 19 times. Very controversial case. Um, just a sampling of what went on in institutions like Bordeaux. And Pinnell on the island of Montreal. This is Who Killed Teresa, and I'm your host, John Alor. Twitter at Teresa Allure at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. There's a Facebook page called Teresa Allure, the podcast. You can follow us there, too. And the website. The website is www.teresaallure.com. T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. .com. That's our show. I'm John. Have yourselves a great, great day.
we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. True crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E.